Welcome to a new season of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Since the last episode of this podcast in January 2019, much has occurred. One occurrence is that the Walt Disney Company completed their acquisition of 20th Century Fox, one of the last standing media companies attached to a classic Hollywood studio lot. The Disney acquisition of Fox is all the more notable given the origins and history of Disney as a movie studio within the landscape of Hollywood giants. Begun as an independent cartoon factory in 1923, the company founded by brothers Walt and Roy Disney entered the big time in 1937 with their first feature film, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Snow White was a massive blockbuster and also a groundbreaking technical achievement, much like the James Cameron films made for Fox that are now part of the Disney library. And much like Cameron's Titanic and Avatar, no one thought Walt Disney in 1937 could pull off Snow White. And when he did, and it became the most successful film of its time, Walt was emboldened to expand his operations into a full-fledged media company that eventually encompassed both animation and live-action films, as well as books, music, television, and, of course, theme parks. But it would be a rocky road, and for every major animated hit like Cinderella, there would be a lot of costly disappointments. As recently as 35 years ago, the Disney company was chugging along on the steam of public nostalgia for its past successes, which, before home video, the company regularly re-released theatrically to collect the easy income of parents introducing their children to the movies they themselves grew up on. This relates to another thing that has been happening for the past few years, but in renewed intensity over the months that this show has been on hiatus. From Tim Burton's Dumbo to the Beyoncé Lion King to the upcoming remakes of Mulan and The Little Mermaid, Disney has found a new way to essentially guarantee fresh income from old properties actually remaking their own movies might be a relatively recent activity, but it's a version of an old business model. Disney has been recycling its own IP shamelessly for not only my entire lifetime, but my mother's entire lifetime. Growing up in the 1980s, the Disney animated re-releases were the first movies I saw. My mother took me to see them because she had loved going to see them as a kid, 
And when she was a kid in the 1950s and 1960s, movies like Cinderella and Snow White were not new. Even then, they were being theatrically re-released because it was cheaper for Disney to re-release old movies, which a new crop of children had never seen, than to produce nothing but new movies that no one had ever seen. Because there were so many Disney animated films in theatrical re-release in the 1980s, I went to the movies all the time. But I never saw a live-action film until I was in first grade and started going over to other kids' houses, where there were VCRs, which we didn't have at my house until a couple of years later. When the home video market exploded... Disney responded by promoting the notion of the Disney Vault, which allowed them to replicate the scarcity that turned their theatrical re-releases into moneymakers by only releasing classic titles on home video for a limited time, and then putting them back in the so-called Disney Vault. This marketing ploy was so transparent that in 2006, it was spoofed in Journey to the Disney Vault, a TV funhouse cartoon segment on Saturday Night Live, which aired on an episode hosted by Lindsay Lohan, who was then only a year or two removed from a career based on starring in remakes of Disney classics. In this edited excerpt from Journey to the Disney Vault, written by Robert Smigel, You'll hear that when two little kids are led into the vault by Mickey Mouse, they find a few things that they're not supposed to see, from Walt Disney's disembodied frozen head to the FBI files outlining his role in blacklisting suspected communists to a certain movie that had been stuck in the Disney vault for 20 years at the time of this sketch. The he Mickey refers to in this clip is Walt Disney. I've never heard of this one. Song of the South. Oh, nobody wants to see that one anymore. <laughs> How bad could it be? It's the very original version that he only played at parties. zip ba da doo da zip ba Negroes are inferior in every way. Why it's so much cleaner? Wow. That's what I wow. say. Look, he was who he was. Take the good with the bad. He created me. Think of all the laughs I've given you. You're supposed to be funny. (laughs) Song of the South is a real movie. It was the only Disney film with a black main character in the company's history until the release of The Princess and the Frog in 2009. And the song you just heard, Zip-a-dee-doo-dah, is a real song in the movie, sung by actor James Basquett in character as a wise old black man named Uncle Remus, who delights a little white boy on a post-Civil War plantation with stories that teach the boy life lessons that his distracted parents can't teach him. For this SNL clip, a James Basket sound-alike was brought in to record a couple of new satirical lyrics to the song. But in a sense, SNL's satire here is speaking out loud a certain unspoken subtext surrounding the real film. Song of the South is really, to this day, hidden in the Disney vault, 
Though this movie was re-released theatrically four times after its initial premiere in 1946, in 1956, 1972, 1980, and 1986, it has never been released on any home video format in the United States, and it probably never will be. In 2011, Disney CEO Robert Iger declared that he had decided that the film wouldn't, quote, feel right to a number of people today, and that, quote, it wouldn't be in the best interest of our shareholders to bring it back, even though there would be some financial gain. In April of 2019, The Hollywood Reporter reported that Iger's decision held firm and that Song of the South would be one title from the Disney vault to be held back from streaming on their new service, Disney+. Iger's use of the word today in 2011 is interesting because it implies that there was once a time when Song of the South felt right to everyone. A popular argument amongst those who defend Song of the South, even in 2019, holds that, quote-unquote, everybody used to see this movie as a touching, heartwarming tale about the friendship between a black man and a white boy, and that only in our PC-obsessed cancel culture has the film become unacceptable. But that is not the case. And to say so is to revise Song of the South's true history as a movie that was always problematic to some. As we'll learn in this season, even in the 1940s, when Song of the South was in production, there were Black and white Americans who were concerned that Walt Disney was not the right person to make a film about plantation life in Reconstruction-era Georgia. And when the movie was released in 1946, many white film critics commented on the film's retrograde and racist depictions of its black protagonists and their relationship to the land they lived on and the white people they worked for. The film also disappeared between its releases in 1956 and 1972, during the period when Sidney Poitier was one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. And still, Song of the South came back when the political center of the country shifted right in a backlash to the civil rights movements of the 1960s. It may be true that Song of the South felt right to some viewers at every point in its history, but it's also true that the film has not felt right to a number of people every day of its existence. What is Song of the South? Why was it made? Why was it released four times in the 40 years after its initial release? And why has Disney decided to refrain from releasing it since 1986, while at the same time recycling the film's songs and characters into all manner of other formats? One of those formats is the theme park ride Splash Mountain, which is loosely based on Song of the South and which first opened at Disneyland after the last theatrical re-release of the movie. 
This season on You Must Remember This, we will explore all of the above. Plus, we'll talk about the complicated racial history behind the movie and its making. We'll trace some of the most problematic and also most popular elements of Song of the South back to blackface minstrel culture. We'll talk about the first African-American actress to win an Oscar and why, less than a decade after that achievement, she took a thankless part in this movie, despite the fact that other prominent African-Americans in Hollywood refused to be part of it. We'll talk about the communist that notorious red hunter Walt Disney hired to rewrite Song of the South. And in our final two episodes, we'll explain Song of the South's incredible resurgence in the 1970s and 1980s and trace how Disney has been able to have it both ways by leaving the movie in the vault while still disseminating its songs and characters in video games, DVD compilations, children's books, and of course, theme park rides. And we'll explore why Disney's more recent refusal to let the film out of the vault has conferred on Song of the South a perhaps even more troubling mystique as the movie the PC police don't want you to see. Today, we'll begin by going back to describe what this movie is like to watch and why Walt Disney made it in the first place. Finally, we'll talk about why the protests around Song of the South in 1946 didn't have more of an impact. Join us, won't you, for the first episode of Six Degrees of Song of the South. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Before we go any further, I want to note that unlike probably most of you, I have seen Song of the South. Twice. I first saw it when I was six years old in a Los Angeles movie theater, where I was taken by my extremely liberal, white Jewish mother. I seem to remember that she took me to see the movie, like every other Disney animated movie that was released in the 1980s, because she had fond memories of the film from her own childhood. If she did see Song of the South as a child, it was probably in 1956, when she was a four-year-old in the suburbs of Boston, and probably not thinking about racial difference in any sort of sophisticated way. When she took me to see Song of the South in 1986, I don't know if she thought about the film in a different way than she had as a child, And because she died in 1991, I can't ask her about that. But I remember that I loved the film when I was six years old. And I know that I saw it in a much different way when I watched it as an adult 
in 2019. The second time I saw Song of the South was a few months ago. The description of the film that follows is based on that viewing. About halfway through Song of the South, we see black workers walking across a plantation, and as they move en masse, they sing this song. Though there has never been an on-screen title or line of dialogue that tells us what year this film is supposed to take place, in 1946, Disney responded to confusion over the historical time period depicted by clarifying that the movie takes place after the Civil War, which puts the song lyric, Gonna stay right here in the home I know, into the context that these are free men and women who are choosing to stay and live and work at the same place where they and or their parents or ancestors had been slaves because it's the only home they know. As a child, I probably paid no attention to these lyrics. But as an adult, I understand that for many former slaves, this was not a simple choice. There was a period in which free blacks had to sign labor contracts or risk being arrested for vagrancy. And those who did stay on plantations under these labor contracts were essentially reconscripted back into conditions extremely similar to slavery. But for many, it wasn't much of a choice because the alternative was migrating north or west to what was essentially a foreign land where white people were still generally racist and opportunities were not plentiful. This is all incredibly dark and sad, or would be if the movie took it seriously. But Song of the South wants you to think that they are staying not because the system is rigged against free blacks post-war, but because they are happy to be there. Thus, the movie introduces a literal note of false romanticization of the plantation in the Reconstruction era. This song puts Song of the South squarely in the tradition of both The Birth of a Nation and Gone with the Wind, as well as films of the 1930s like John Ford's Judge Priest with Hattie McDaniel and Mississippi with Bing Crosby, in which the ideal black person is depicted as a docile one who happily works either while singing or while spirituals play on the film's soundtrack. As film historian Ed Guerrero has noted, this sentimentalizes their work and alienates the exploitation and violence that featured in their labor. Song of the South's white protagonist is Johnny, a boy of six or seven who is riding in a horse-drawn buggy with his mom, his dad, and their servant Tempe, played by Hattie McDaniel. McDaniel, who made her career playing often surly servants, wears a giant grin for the whole of this scene. She's observing, bemusedly, as the parents awkwardly answer Johnny's questions about what's about to happen. What's happening is that Tempe, Johnny, and Johnny's mother are going to live on the plantation where the mom grew up, 
while Johnny's father stays in Atlanta, where he seems to be some kind of muckraking journalist. The movie doesn't have much time for the details of this, beyond Johnny's acknowledgement that everybody's mad at what Daddy writes in the newspaper. There are clearly problems in this marriage, and it seems like whatever Daddy is writing in the newspaper is a catalyst for at least some of them. When Johnny finally realizes that his father is going away and that it may be a prelude to his parents splitting up for good, he's incredibly distraught, and he decides to run away and join his father in Atlanta. He promptly gets lost on the wild fringes of the plantation. Here, Greg Toland's moody cinematography and the overexpressiveness of kid actor Bobby Driscoll combine to depict the plantation as a dark dream space, heightened, uncertain, but not quite a nightmare. Lost and tired, Johnny wanders into the camp where the black workers live and are amusing themselves by singing a song about Uncle Remus and his explanations for things like how the leopard got its spots and the camel its humps. Johnny soon meets this legendary Uncle Remus, a large, kindly, white-haired old man in a shabby jacket, who tells Johnny he'll run away to Atlanta with him if Johnny comes with Remus to the ramshackle cabin where he lives so they can pick up some food for the road. This is a ruse to distract Johnny. At the shack, the little boy agrees to sit and listen to one of Remus's stories. Now, this year tale didn't happen just yesterday, nor the day before. It was a long time ago, and in them days, everything was mighty satisfactory. The critters, they was closer to the folks, and the folks, they was closer to the critters. And if you'll excuse me for saying so, it was better all around. Just before Remus says, "'Twas better all around," he pauses, and we cut to a close-up of little Johnny. When it turns out that what Remus is asking to be excused for saying is, essentially, I preferred the way things were before the Civil War, when people like me were understood to be closer to animals than humans, Johnny breaks into a big grin. You can watch this scene on YouTube, where, as in the film, it leads into Remus singing the film's most memorable song. Now that's the kind of day when you can't open your mouth without a song jump right out of it. My oh my, what a wonderful day. Plenty of sunshine hit my way. Mr. Bluebird's on my shoulder. It's the truth. It's actual. Everything is satisfactual. Wonderful feeling. Wonderful day. Yes, sir. Zippity My oh my. What a wonderful day. Oh, plenty of sunshine in the way. 
When he began singing the song, we cut from the dreary cabin to a technicolor pastoral space in which the live actor James Baskett interacts with cartoon plants and animals. So, for instance, he's singing the words, it's actual, to cartoon birds, who are obviously not actual. Just like the song lyric about staying on the plantation, there is a way to read this for its irony and to see Remus's frolic with imaginary animals as his way of coping with the pretty shitty situation of living and working on a plantation as a black man during Reconstruction. But again, this is an overreach. The movie doesn't want you to think about any of that. It just wants you to see Remus as a magical Negro who has the power to conjure up this more beautiful world for little Johnny's enjoyment. Remus proceeds to tell Johnny a parable about an animated character named Br'er Rabbit, who, like Johnny, is determined to leave the briar patch where he lives. But outside the briar patch, he finds that there are predators— Br'er Fox and Br'er Bear, ready and willing to capture and eat him. Br'er Rabbit learns that even if his home is a briar patch, where he has to tread lightly and carefully to avoid getting hurt, at least there are no foxes there, and it's worse on the outside. This not only teaches little white Johnny not to run away from home, But it also supports the message of the first song from the movie we heard, and much of the film's songs and drama. That regardless of the dangers and pain surrounding Black people on the plantation, at least they are the dangers and pain that they know, and thus preferable to the dangers and pain waiting in the outside world. This message gets an odd spin in one of the movie's most controversial segments, in which Br'er Fox sets a trap for Br'er Rabbit by creating a baby out of tar and leaving it by the side of the road. Br'er Rabbit can't stop himself from literally getting tangled up with this tar baby, which leads to much imagery evoking blackface and minstrel caricatures, and a muddled lesson about minding one's own business. After their first encounter, Johnny and Uncle Remus form a friendship. And as Johnny navigates life on the plantation, he comes to rely on Remus's stories for guidance. Johnny's mother is a horror show of a Southern belle who cares only about appearances. And thus, while she's not thrilled that her son has also befriended a poor white girl who lives with her large, uncouth family on the outskirts of Johnny's family's land— The mom is more upset that Johnny wants to spend most of his time with that old slave Uncle Remus, learning these animal stories that are meant for black people and not fine white heirs like her Johnny. She tells Remus to stay away from her son. (laughs) Lord, Miss Sally, Johnny didn't mean no harm. He just tried to be like Brer Rabbit. I told him a tale about the tar baby, and he just got a little bit too bodacious and outreached himself, that's all. Uncle Remus, I'm trying my best to bring up Johnny to be obedient and truthful. But you and your stories are making that very difficult. I think maybe it would be better if he didn't hear anymore for a while. Well, Miss Sally, the stories ain't done no They only confuse him. I know you mean well, Uncle Remus, but Johnny's too young. Miss Sally... I'll have to ask you not to tell him anymore. 
Uncle Remus seems to intend to do as he's told, but Johnny seeks him out, and after another conflict with Johnny's mom, Remus decides to go away. If this was the end of the movie, it might sort of be a real happy ending. But instead, Johnny tries to run after Remus, and the little boy gets butted by a bull. Johnny is on death's door, which compels his father to leave his newspaper in Atlanta and reconcile with Johnny's mom at the boy's bedside. But Johnny doesn't want his parents anymore. In his delirium, he calls out for someone else. Son, Daddy's here. Uncle Raymond. Come back, Uncle Remus. Come back. Johnny. Johnny. Uncle Remus, please. For all of Song of the South's many, many problems, there is something in Johnny's loneliness and alienation from his parents that as an adult I even found emotionally resonant. And the parents seem so terrible that when he's injured and delirious and asking for Uncle Remus, you feel mom and dad are getting what they deserve. But this is also an example of a certain Hollywood tendency to force Black characters to sacrifice their own lives and narratives to better serve white characters and even serve children in ways that their parents are incapable of. These tendencies were already the subject of much protest by 1946, as we'll see throughout this season. After Johnny recovers, the film ends with a coda in which Johnny runs with his friends, the poor white girl and a black boy who apparently works in the plantation house, through the countryside. They show Remus that they, too, can see the animated characters that he has conjured up, and the old man frolics with them into the horizon as they all sing zippity doo When people who have seen Song of the South think about the movie, I think this is the image they think of, of this interracial, intergenerational crew united in friendship. But of course, they're also united in their fantasy vision of a satisfactual life on the plantation. Defenders of Song of the South have said that the film actually promotes tolerance because Johnny seems to be completely colorblind in his love for Uncle Remus, and at the end, they walk off together into the sunset. It's true that Johnny does love Uncle Remus, but Johnny's love for Uncle Remus doesn't have anything to do with the fact that he and the other Black people in the movie are offensively depicted as being happy to live on a plantation having no lives of their own or purpose beyond taking care of white people. Johnny turns to Remus because he's starved for love and attention that his father isn't there to give him and his mother declines to give him, perhaps because she grew up in a world in which black slaves were expected to take on aspects of raising children that white parents couldn't be bothered with. Also, the mom is, frankly, terrible, And when after a while she decides that Uncle Remus's stories are corrupting her child and she tells Uncle Remus to stay away from Johnny, she fails to offer the boy the care and companionship that she's taken away. The mother's attitude 
implying that Remus's black folktales are a bad influence on her white son, is the only way the film acknowledges the racism inherent in the world it depicts. It definitely engenders sympathy for Uncle Remus, but it's hardly enough. Another common defense of Song of the South is that its view of race relations is dated, but of its time. As we'll see, in 1946, there were plenty of people who didn't think the film was acceptable. But the fact that it was made the way that it was can be tied to where Walt Disney was during that time. After the massive success of Snow White in 1937, Disney tried to rush out a few follow-ups, and the result was a couple of future classics that would at the time look like money-losing fiascos. Fantasia, and Pinocchio. The company was in so much debt by the early 1940s that Walt had to take drastic measures to try to ensure quick profits. If you were making movies in Hollywood during and just after 1939, you were aware of the massive box office of that year's biggest film, Gone with the Wind, and chances were you were looking for your own way to replicate it. Walt believed that Gone with the Wind's release had hurt his own film, Pinocchio, but like every other producer in town, he was more jealous than resentful. Gone with the Wind had paired nostalgia for the myth of the plantation with technological and artistic innovation, much like the birth of a nation before it. This now looked like a foolproof commercial formula. Revisionist racism plus groundbreaking filmmaking, had twice equaled massive profits. Disney landed on his own spin on this formula. He decided that his Gone with the Wind would be a live-action animation hybrid adaptation of Joel Chandler Harris's extremely popular Uncle Remus stories, which were widely published in the late 19th and early 20th centuries and extremely influential. Some historians believe that Mark Twain, who corresponded with Harris about Uncle Remus, was inspired by Harris's stories to write Huckleberry Finn. And the interplay between Harris's animal characters has been credited as an inspiration to most of the 20th century's mismatched animated infighting duos, from Tom and Jerry to Roadrunner and the Coyote. Harris was a white Southerner, born to a poor single mother in Georgia just before the Civil War. At the age of 14, Harris wanted to join the Confederate Army, but he was too young. So instead, he went to work on a Confederate newspaper in exchange for room and board on the newspaper publisher's plantation. Harris would later claim that given his own penniless, illegitimate background— he felt more comfortable around slaves than the white masters of the plantation, and he thus spent his off time hanging around the slave quarters, listening to them tell stories. Some of the slaves on this particular plantation stayed there after the end of the Civil War, which may have encouraged Harris to believe that they were happy with the status quo. Throughout his life and his work, Harris would romanticize the Southern plantation. He believed both that slavery had been an institution that had worked 
in part because he believed that black people were inherently inferior to white, and he also believed that once the genie was out of the bottle, it couldn't be put back. Meaning that once you had told slaves that they were free, you could never enslave them again. That fact meant, to certain Southern white men, that the idea of home that they had grown up with was permanently lost. Two decades later, as a columnist at the Atlanta Constitution, Harris began publishing versions of the stories he said he had learned from the slaves on the plantation. Harris's versions of these stories were narrated by the fictional Uncle Remus, which Harris said was a composite for several old, wise Black men he had known. And the stories were largely parables featuring a crew of animal characters, written in Harris's interpretation of Southern Black dialect. In these stories, the hero was Br'er Rabbit, the smallest animal but also the wiliest, who was constantly preyed on by larger animals and has to use his brain to outwit his foes. Harris later published nine books full of Uncle Remus stories before dying in 1908. History has, shall we say, mixed feelings about Joel Chandler Harris. Film historian Ed Guerrero places Harris in the same tradition of Southern post-Civil War literature as Thomas Dixon, whose writings inspired The Birth of a Nation and stemmed from the insecurity and impotence white Southern men felt after losing the war and feeling like their status was now being threatened by the men they used to own. That said, to even call Harris a writer is, to some critics, giving him too much credit. Maurice Rapf, one of Song of the South's screenwriters who later disowned the film, called Harris not a writer, but a transcriptionist. Because if we're to believe Harris's own account of his methods, he was essentially transcribing the stories told to him by current and former slaves whom he declined to lend the humanity of crediting by name. There has been much debate as to the authenticity of Harris's writing, given that he both sought to appropriate Black dialect and also never accounted for how his presence as a white man amongst slaves could have impacted the form and content of the stories he heard. Harris believed he was preserving a folklore and a tradition that would have been lost if not for him. And certainly, no other white man was publishing these stories in white newspapers, and no black man would have been able to. In the late 1800s, Uncle Remus provided an awakening for some Southern whites who had never before considered that a black man could have an intellectual life. Still, Harris was never able to account for the idea that the stories he was allowed to hear were not the same as the stories the black workers would have told had he, a white man, not been present. And there is no indication he ever attempted to have a real collaboration with, or even contact, the people whose stories he later disseminated and profited from. What are the ethics behind a white Southerner with a Confederate background, whose whole project amounted to a romantic defense of slavery, 
filtering and profiting from the slave oral tradition on behalf of Black storytellers without their involvement or permission. And can we even take seriously Harris's stated mission of trying to preserve slave folklore when we know he was also trying to preserve a fantasy of a bucolic plantation where slaves were happy to serve their masters and for that reason chose to continue to do so when they could have left to live their own lives? These were not questions Walt Disney concerned himself with. While Gone with the Wind was still in theaters, before Fantasia had even opened and damaged Disney's finances further, he visited Atlanta to close the deal with Harris's family. The Washington Post reported that Disney also toured the state's rural areas, where he, quote, tried to learn how Georgians really talk about how the Remus tales are standing up now. This article was clipped by the FBI and included in their file on Disney. So why didn't Disney make Song of the South in 1940, when Gone with the Wind first inspired him to do so? He started developing the material, but then in 1941, his animators went on strike. We discussed this a bit in our previous episode on Disney, which I would suggest listening to if you haven't. The gist is, Walt believed the strike was ginned up by communists, and the whole experience would push Walt Disney far to the political right and cause him to become an active force in the coming Hollywood blacklist. Then the U.S. entered World War II, and the Disney Animation Factory would be turned over to the production of propaganda, training films, and entertainment with a clear diplomatic purpose and government funding, such as The Three Caballeros. That anthology film, consisting of seven short films knitted together with a framing device, featured Donald Duck and two bird friends from Brazil and Mexico interacting with live-action performers. Caballeros was a much-needed hit in 1944. Given the trouble Disney had had replicating the success of Snow White with other purely animated films, the success of Caballeros must have seemed like an indication that audiences of the 1940s would only respond to cartoons if they were part of a live-action reality. In that hybrid form, Disney saw an opportunity to innovate, which excited him. But given the studio's still precarious financial situation, which wasn't improving even as the wider film industry was booming, he was looking for innovation at a cost. Walt saw Song of the South, in which Disney would animate Uncle Remus's stories about Br'er Rabbit and Friends and situate these cartoon elements into a live-action drama as the solution to a number of his problems, and he now rushed it into production. Live-action appealed to Walt in part because he was still annoyed with his animators due to the strike, but mainly because he predicted that live-action would be cheaper to produce than animation— because only about a third of Song of the South's total running time was animated, the animation was able to be done with a kind of precision and artistry that the studio hadn't matched since Snow White. For the quality of this filmmaking alone, Disney expected Song of the South to be a sensation. The Hollywood trade papers, Variety and The Hollywood Reporter, 
both gave rave reviews, predicting that the film's technological advancements would fill houses. Neither publication dealt with the controversial nature of the material directly, although the reporter's language suggested the story of the film was colorblind, implying that viewers should be as well. In its 1946 release, Song of the South did okay at the box office. It grossed $3.3 million, twice what Dumbo had made before the war, although Dumbo had been much, much cheaper to produce. Wikipedia and other modern sources call Song of the South the highest-grossing film of 1946, which is completely misleading. Yes, the film has grossed more than any other film released in 1946, but only when you calculate in its grosses over 50 years. No other film, first released in 1946, was released four additional times, with its most profitable releases coming in the 1970s and 80s. If you just look at the three-plus million Song of the South made when it was released in 1946, by most metrics, it would not have made the top 10 for the year, and if you adjust all of the films released in 1946 for inflation, it ranks as the 37th highest-grossing film of the year. Film critics who were not movie industry cheerleaders were unimpressed by Song of the South's technical achievements and not shy in taking Disney to task for political incorrectness. If you want to get your fill of good old-fashioned Southern corn, just dash right out and see Walt Disney's Song of the South, John McCartan wrote in The New Yorker on November 30th, 1946. This wasn't exactly a recommendation. He called the live-action material, quote, the purest sheep dip about happy days on the old plantation, adding, when the camera investigates those merry darkies singing around their cabins and on their way to the cotton fields, you begin to wonder if Disney doesn't think Lincoln was wrong in signing the Emancipation Proclamation. Bosley Crowther essentially plagiarized this sentiment a week later in the New York Times. In an open, admonishing letter to Walt Disney himself, Crowther wrote, The master-slave relationship is so lovingly regarded in your yarn, with the Negroes bowing and scraping and singing spirituals in the night, that one might almost imagine that you figure Abe Lincoln made a mistake. Manny Farber's review mocked the film's depiction of, quote, plantation life as a paradise for lucky slaves, and praised Basket for being so skillful in registering contentment that even the people who believe in the virtues of slavery are going to want to know his secret. Jimmy Fiddler, a gossip columnist with a popular radio show, declared that the movie, quote, should be immediately withdrawn, and the entire Hollywood industry share the cost because it will mean a black eye for all the industry. Variety reported that Disney and his studio were shocked at the criticism because the film, quote, did not take place during slavery days but after the Civil War, and the most sympathetic character in it is a Negro. But of course, the problem was not that Uncle Remus wasn't sympathetic— the problem was that, even in 1946, Song of the South seemed to be recycling dated stereotypes about Black people 
within a romanticization of plantation life that was troublingly even more simplified than the blockbuster Gone with the Wind, which had been released a full seven years earlier. Even if racism was not front of every viewer's mind in 1946, most viewers could see that the movie's setting and premise was stale. By the time it was released, the NAACP had been actively protesting images of Black people produced by Hollywood for about half a decade. In fact, Disney had been receiving letters from concerned Black citizens about Song of the South as far back as 1944, when, about a month after the invasion of Normandy, Disney's mailbox was flooded with notes expressing concern and offering suggestions to improve the depiction of Uncle Remus and his plantation milieu. World War II had given African Americans more opportunity to move into more spaces previously generally reserved for whites than ever before, and Black activist groups also swelled in numbers. During the war, Black American activists were united behind the concept of double V, which meant that Black men and women would support the effort to achieve victory for the United States abroad, and then they'd work on achieving victory for civil rights at home. By 1946, when Song of the South was gearing up for release, it was unclear if the momentum behind double V had survived beyond D-Day. Ultimately, Black activists couldn't agree on the correct response to Song of the South. When the American Council on Race Relations urged the NAACP to support them in boycotting the film, the NAACP declined. Officer Gloucester Current lamented, quote, The Negro stereotype of docility interwoven with the motif of satisfaction with slavery... But the NAACP was inclined to save their bullets for a bigger monster. Whereas mainstream white liberal critics felt comfortable accusing Walt Disney of wishing the Civil War had never happened, some black intellectuals and activists looked at Song of the South and thought, well, it's not as bad as it could have been. Uncle Remus is a stereotype, but not an unsympathetic one. And for some it was hard to complain about a Hollywood movie that not only centered on a Black character, but suggested that he was a better influence on white children than their own biological families. Of course, Remus's version of taking care of the white kids was to feed them stories from the quote-unquote good old days, and one doesn't have to be much of a historian to stop and think for a second and realize that in any old days before the time of this movie, Uncle Remus would have been a slave and thus his old days could only be considered good in a white fantasy. But as egregious as it sounds when framed that way, when Song of the South actually saw the light of day in 1946, many felt it wasn't a big enough or bad enough target for the kind of demonstration of unified power that some in the Black community had hoped for. At the end of the day, it wasn't a cultural juggernaut. It was a children's movie that barely broke even at the box office. Despite the hope of some that Song of the South might provide a catalyst to unify Black activists in the fight for better representation in Hollywood, the film actually sharply defined the divisions in that community. It was left to leftist publications, 
such as the worker, to pick apart the minstrel influence on Br'er Rabbit, which we'll get into more later this season, while an organization like the NAACP, which still hoped to insert itself in Hollywood's business structure, tried to toe the line between fulfilling their mission to push Hollywood for better representation and maintaining a friendly enough relationship with the studios that their mission wouldn't be dismissed out of hand. Ultimately, the NAACP released a statement criticizing the, quote, idyllic master-slave relationship depicted in the movie, but decided not to join the National Negro Congress, who picketed in front of theaters showing the film, handing out pamphlets citing the movie's, quote, dangerous stereotyping that creates an impression of Negroes in the minds of their fellow Americans, which make them appear to be second-class citizens. None of these protests caught fire the way protests against the birth of a nation had, for better or for worse. In 1946, Song of the South was neither marred by criticism from the Black community, nor was its box office goosed by controversy. It simply opened and did okay at the box office, despite mixed reviews, and then it disappeared. Still, Walt Disney was extremely perturbed by negative reaction to the film, and he believed that it was not a genuine, spontaneous response to the movie he had made. Rather than give African Americans credit for organizing themselves, he assumed they had been suckered and pressed into action by the same devious communists who he believed had turned his own workers against him in the strike days. Disney instructed his personal aides to investigate where the protests were coming from. He got what he was looking for when one of his men told him that the African-American newspaper, The Eagle, had been infiltrated by commies. And from then on, Walt refused to believe that criticism of Song of the South was sincere. Disney was unable to hear arguments against the film, in part because he was so obsessed with commies. But Disney's personal failings don't account for the incredibly complicated and ever-evolving reception that Song of the South has experienced over the decades, which owe as much to what else was going on in Hollywood and in American culture as the film itself. Next week, we will go back in time to trace the journey of the first Black star to win an Oscar, a journey that was on a rocky road when Song of the South came along. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was produced, written, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. This episode was edited by Jared O'Connell. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes, which include lists of all of our sources, information about music, and much more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, 
And we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. You can also support the show on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash Karina Longworth. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. See?